Have you ever felt you didn't receive what you worked for? Or maybe something bad happened to you that you didn't deserve? Welcome back to Form a Classical Revelation with your host, Caleb. And today, I will walk you through a lesson of life's absurdity and how to tame your mind amongst it. The burning desire in every person's heart to experience change but keep their daily lives the same, two ideas in an ultimate, ultimate juxtaposition. They seem to oppose each other so heavily, yet we yearn for both of them simultaneously. My thoughts on change have always been that it's inevitable to occur sooner or later, so only control what you can, and that usually is only the thoughts inside of one's head. The people who hear this often are most likely tired of the expression that mindset is everything, <laughs> but the sad truth to those is that this statement is unironically pretty useful. There's a lot that can be impacted in it, and my favorite example of like an evolution mindset comes from the books in the Bible known as the wisdom books. So these consist of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. I'm going to give you a preview of them, kind of to accustom you to the lifestyle of a Christian and a life that they should lead. So you can kind of maybe check up on a Christian to make sure that they're living the right way. And then also, I don't believe you have to be a Christian to take the wisdom out of these books. While I do want you to go out and read the Bible, you don't have to be a Christian to take wisdom out of these books. It's just kind of a guide on how to live right. Firstly, the book of Proverbs. This book revolves around the idea of an invisible creative force that moves about the universe unseen by the eye or any type of technology. Um, in Hebrew, it's pronounced as chokmah. Or you got to kind of reach into the back of your throat to pronounce it. So it's chokmah. And, and it usually translates to English as wisdom. So imagine the speaker of Proverbs to be an intelligent teacher, one of greater knowledge than most. But not only in educational things such as math, science, and English, she is also gifted with the ability to teach all things such as relationships, school, work, spirituality, sex, morals, justice, and the most importantly, the most important thing, the thing I keep bringing back into the light, wisdom. However, we haven't really defined wisdom, at least in a biblical sense. So to start, I will explain that wisdom is an attribute of God and it's a force that's woven between the seams of justice. So where there's good and joy that occurs, it usually means that people are tapping into this chokmah and where there's foul play or immorality occurring would usually signal someone working against hakma. This not only refers to an intellectual wisdom, the use of the word also leans more towards the meaning of skill. It is the unseen force of the universe as well as a idea for someone who practices a certain skill will become more woven together with the hakma. It's a hakma. It's kind of hard to pronounce for English speakers. There's a fatal flaw, however, in the entire book of Proverbs. And it shows the world as this push-comes-to-shove type of environment, which most of the times is not true. We know as inhabitants of Earth that the world is full of corruption and injustice goes unpunished. So to paint the picture of what we are working with, we read into the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes begins by saying this, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abides forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down and hasteth to the place where he arose. The wind goeth south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. And that comes from Ecclesiastes 1, 4-6. The speaker has a really depressing tone that he is conveying through even just the few beginning lines, but it displays an evolution in philosophy by the end of the book, which I will quickly run by you. 
The author wants you to flip your view of the world upside down. There are three main points tackled by the writer, and the first is the unyielding march of time. Again, leaning into the first few lines of the book, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, a depressing truth about how we don't know even the names of family so far as sometimes five generations back, much less a hundred or two hundred. So this is where the idea of the human soul being nothing more than a vapor or a blink comes from. Because think of on a cosmic scale, we are nothing more than a glimmer, if even that. Think about how awesome stars are that fill up the night sky, less now because of light pollution. But nonetheless, take a moment to ponder how many of those stars have been there millennia before you and I, and will sustain long after. So... Getting over this milestone of existentialism, we encounter the next main point, the simple fact that we will all die. Humans are to face the same fate as those previous as well as the universe at large, because the universe is a dying one, and not only do any beliefs of any religion, including Christian ones, follow that, but science also proves the heat death of the universe. And this universal death is on such a scale, and it's so absurdly large that there's no hope to cope with the idea of being non-existent, not just for us, but the cosmic background at large. Remember how I described how chukmah affected the good and the bad? How the good had it interwoven with the world while the bad fought and pulled away from it? Well, this book does not shy away from the truth and describes death's unrelenting grasp on or our mortality. How the just and the unjust fall six feet Deep beneath the grass, a dilemma most philosophers even today are troubled by. The book does not even have the problem with explaining your worldly mortality. And just because you're righteous, it does not differ from unjust people. Just because you made sacrifices to God, we are all bound by the same fate. The final point of the book of Ecclesiastes offers the random nature of existence. We all have encountered this at some point or another. Here lies one of the biggest splits between the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs offers philosophical principles that apply to a world where things go to plan. But anyone who has been alive long enough to make a conscious decision can tell you that this could not be farther from the truth. Not only that, the book offers this idea that if you are right in justice, you will be rewarded, which, like, that's okay in a sense. But Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, understands that life doesn't always work that way. I go as far as saying as it doesn't work that way in most of the time. I mean, the writer of Ecclesiastes explains the randomness of life through one of my favorite pieces of poetry ever, and it goes like this. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet the bread to the wise, nor yet riches to the men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeth to them all. And that comes from Ecclesiastes 9.11. And this piece perfectly illustrates what I and the book are trying to portray, randomness. You can't control, for the most part, anything in life. And the author, as a term to tie all these ideas together, he uses the expression hevel. This is another Hebrew term, and it means smoke or vapor. Think of the beauty of smoke, how it's ever-changing and mysterious, but impossible to grab, slipping through your fingers. And when you're inside of it, when in a fog, you can't see clearly. Hopefully illustrating that, like, in this metaphor for life. Um, but in modern translations of the Bible, especially in the international version, 
you'll see the word hevel being replaced with the word meaningless, which, in a sense, it's not really what the word means. The word doesn't mean that life is meaningless. It's only trying to convey the idea that the meaning of life is never clear. Out of this existential writing, the author says that there is a great idea to learn from the lesson of Proverbs, which somewhat goes against what he's been writing about. But he says that living in righteousness does not guarantee success, but he understands that living this way is the right thing to do. So he wants to live with the hachma. <laughs> so with this, with this philosophy in mind, he leaves the reader with the idea to hold life with open hands. Since life is so uncontrollable, you really only have control over one thing, and that's over yourself. So he wants to let the reader understand the importance of the present moment, to stop worrying and let go because some things are not in your power. And the writer wants the reader to choose and enjoy life and realize the good and the bad are both gifts of the Lord. That the simple things are what this life is worth living for and to remain humble. However, we have one more dilemma that we are faced with. While these, both these books and these things sound well and good to put into action, we don't have a living example of how these two books will tie into how you would live. And that's pretty much it until we read to the book of Job. The book of Job definitely tackles some of the problems Ecclesiastes asked about how and why good things sometimes happen to bad people and why bad things happen to good people. And it begins with a story that's pretty strange pertaining to most other beginnings in the Bible. And it's a short story about what's happening in the heavens. And there's this type of council meeting pertaining to a man named Job, who is this great religious man and an example for others. But one angelic being approaches God and questions whether Job is just being a good man for all the benefits that he has. See, Job had a wife, many kids, servants, many animals, and many crops. So it may look like Job was good and pure, but this entity says that he believed that he was cheating God by being good to get these gifts, or he's kind of cheating the system. So God wanted to test Job's faith, and he took everything. Job loses his crops, animals, wife, and kids, and he falls into a depression due to his loss. But surprisingly, in the midst of his suffering, he still praises God. And this might seem on the contrary to what most people would do in the situation, especially since Job deserves none of this which is happening to him. But not too long after this, he starts to curse the day that he was born, as it were then that he would continue into the strife. Later, Job's friends arrive to help him, and they give him this, their advice on how to improve his situation. They agree that Job must have done something against God to deserve this punishment, because God is just. So going back to Proverbs' teachings, they say because the world is ordered by God's fairness, then Job must have committed wrongdoing. They even describe hypotheticals that Job may have fallen victim to and say that he must be getting what he deserves, despite the fact that, he know, that we know as the reader he really doesn't. But even when his friends try to discover what Job's wrongdoings were, he defends his innocence because he really is innocent. His friends are probably not helping the fact that Job keeps jumping between big being confident in God's rescue and doubting how just God really is. This downward spiral leads to Job accusing God of being unjust, and he demands to speak with God on what he has cursed Job with. So God actually listens and comes down, but he doesn't give a direct answer. See, God actually shows Job how big and complex the world is, 
an accident Job would be capable of running or understanding for only 24 hours. He describes the details of existence about the things we see, but don't entirely understand. God explains how he understands all things with ultimate accuracy. He explains how the complexity and choices he makes are too mind-blowing for Job to completely understand. How he has his reasonings for everything. Including his encounter with Job, God shows two majestic beasts that could kill him without a second thought or even meaning to. He explains how these beasts aren't even evil and how they are part of this world. Then God ends his speech. If that doesn't entirely make sense to you, if you feel like he hasn't really answered Job's question or prayers, you're not really alone because Job feels that way too. But God wants Job to have the understanding not of his situation because his perspective is pretty linear and only looking at the right now. But God's perspective is on everything because he understands not just the world, but the happenings and everything that will ever happen. Showing God's infinitely bigger perspective on where he has dynamic interactions constantly with the world that we can't understand, and how he understands everything that will happen when he makes a decision. This is what God describes as his wisdom, the understanding of a complex and dynamic universe. This message leaves Job with humility, that even though his understanding is limited, he does have the knowledge of himself and God to live at peace in the fear of the Lord. However, at the end of the book, God restores and even doubles what Job had before, which may seem like it is just as undeserved or unneeded as the curse that Job suffered, but we can think back to how limited our understanding is and how loving and complex God thinks. At the end, we can see that wisdom is not only just to know the world around you, but also to understand yourself. Knowing the world helps us to realize how confusing and unjust it can seem at times. Proverbs tries to paint this picture of a pure and just world, while Ecclesiastes criticizes that worldview and how damaging it could be for someone who loves God but feels as though they have been shorthanded. Job helps us to realize the dynamic complexity of God and to keep faith in Him. Make sure to keep this type of wisdom at hand when you believe the world to be crumbling around you, because true wisdom is understanding that sometimes you cannot. This has been To Form a Classical Revelation. Have a good existence. God bless.